History of Persia is a Hopful Media Podcast production. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 79, Cyrus III. Again, just before launching into things, I want to remind everyone that barring any new natural disasters, there is currently a Patreon goal to make the History of Persia commit to a weekly schedule, and a sticker giveaway for new patrons through September 21st. If stickers don't capture your attention, check out the podcast merch store by clicking on the store section of historyofpersiapodcast.com. Okay, last time we resumed the historical narrative. Darius II is dead. Long live King Artaxerxes II. Unless, of course, you're the king's brother, mother, or any of a large number of satraps, nobles, courtiers, and priests. Then, apparently, you were really rooting for Darius to have a last-minute change of heart and name his second son, Cyrus the Younger, as heir to the throne. Darius didn't do that, and according to all but the most blatantly pro-Cyrus sources, the younger brother plotted to assassinate the eldest son of Darius and Parasatus in the middle of his coronation ceremony. The plot was revealed to Artaxerxes before it could play out by Tissaphernes, the local governor of Caria who had lost his bigger satrapy in Lydia to Cyrus during the Ionian War with Athens. Mostly, because I just want to remind everyone That happened because Tissaphernes was an incompetent liaison with Sparta, whose actions were definitely extending the war much longer than was necessary. Tissaphernes' claims were backed up by a pro-Cyrus Megas, who thought the fratricide was a bridge too far and Cyrus was detained, but saved from the executioner by his mother's timely intervention. Cyrus went home to be the most loyal Karanos he could, still allowed to rule as his brother's absolute viceroy in Anatolia, much to Tissaphernes' consternation. Once back in Sardis, Cyrus meticulously cultivated the image of a loyal and subservient brother. For three years, Cyrus ensured that the tribute from his territory was on time and fully accounted for. In his letters back to his brother's court, he was excessively courteous and apologetic for their previous disputes. Despite this, Artaxerxes made a point to send regular envoys from his own inner circle to Sardis so they could check in on Cyrus and make sure there were no secrets in Anatolia. Gone were the days of executing royal cousins for minor violations of court protocol. Cyrus would lavish these guests with praise and gifts, making sure to endear them to himself 
while making sure to praise Artaxerxes' good work back home, and repeatedly declaring his loyalty to his brother as the rightful king. In short, Cyrus the Younger went out of his way to present himself as a good little brother, a good prince, and a good Karanos. The only hiccup came shortly after he returned from the coronation in Parsa. Cyrus and Tissaphernes returned to Anatolia, the former chastised and the latter frustrated by his own lack of progress. But there had been one change in the status quo. As a reward for revealing Cyrus's plot and saving Artaxerxes' life, the new king redistributed the tribute on the coast of Anatolia. Once Ionia had been retaken from the Athenians, the distribution of Greek tribute had reverted to exactly what it had been before the Delian League besieged the Persian coast. That meant that the Doric cities around Halicarnassus paid tribute to the governor of Caria, who then passed on a share of the whole to the satrap of Lydia. But the Ionian cities, on the central coast of Anatolia, paid their tribute directly to the satrap with no minor governor taking his cut. Artaxerxes II changed this and extended Tissaphernes' territory further up the coast. Now it included all of the Ionian Greek cities up to the territory controlled by Pharnabazus, the satrap of Phrygia. This effectively stripped Cyrus of his most ardent supporters in the region and unhindered access to his own coastline. In principle, it slightly limited Cyrus's own treasury, kept a navy out of his hands, and allowed agents loyal to Tissaphernes to monitor communication between Cyrus and his allies in Sparta, which still loved Cyrus and hated Tissaphernes for their roles in the recent war with Athens. There was just one problem with this plan. Most of the Greeks in Anatolia agreed with the Spartans. Tissaphernes and Pharnabazus's constant bickering and politicking had prolonged a war that saw their cities subjected to repeated sieges and bloodshed. They didn't like Athens, and Persian rule in general was still popular. But the Ionians resented Tissaphernes' imposition and preferred Cyrus on a personal level. So they rebelled, not against Persia as a whole, but against Tissaphernes specifically. The various assemblies, oligarchs, and tyrants of the Ionian cities sent letters to Cyrus asking him for support in their fight, which Cyrus was all too happy to provide. Cyrus put out the call for mercenaries in Greece. His messengers went straight to the Peloponnese and asked Sparta for veterans of the Peloponnesian War, including many who had already served under Cyrus and captured these exact cities. Now the unchallenged power in mainland Greece, Sparta was all too happy to oblige because Cyrus appealed to their sense of hegemony. As Cyrus described it, he was a proven friend of the Greeks, but Tissaphernes was an unwelcome enemy. So the Spartans had a duty to protect the Greeks of Anatolia, not just the mainland. The Spartans weren't ready to commit their full military to the project so soon after defeating Athens. 
but they authorized the emancipation of 1,000 Helot slaves so they could go to Ionia under the command of a Spartan general named Thibron. He was also authorized to collect 4,000 hoplites from other cities in the Peloponnesian League. On his own initiative, Thibron stopped over in Athens and offered to take and pay for 300 Athenian nobles who had served as cavalry under the oligarchy towards the end of the Peloponnesian War. Happy to be rid of a bunch of pro-oligarch aristocrats, the Athenian government sent them off with the Spartans. They moved swiftly and seized control of the cities before Tissaphernes' loyalists could react. They had popular support, and the practically unlimited funds of Lydia, Cappadocia, Phrygia, and Cyrus's personal wealth behind them. Since the rebellion was pro-Cyrus, and these troops were there on Cyrus's orders, the Ionians mostly submitted without issue. The Peloponnesian mercenaries garrisoned the cities and maintained order everywhere except Miletus, always the outlier, and the Ionian city nearest to Caria anyway. Tissaphernes' agents had a stronger presence there, they captured and executed the ringleaders of the rebellion, and repulsed the initial mercenary force that tried to take the city. At this point, we should all be familiar with the difficulties in taking Miletus. Basically impregnable without a simultaneous land and sea assault, and always prepared to withstand that for months, Cyrus is far from the first Persian to struggle with this city. Fortunately, despite his brother's best intentions, Cyrus now had direct control over the rest of Ionia, and told his allies there to get their warships out on the water and down to Miletus, while a combination of local levies and Peloponnesian mercenaries besieged the city walls. As this battle began, Cyrus got letters off to his brother's court, his mother's household, and presumably the other satraps of Anatolia, especially Pharnabazus in Phrygia, who was the wealthiest and most influential behind Cyrus himself. He explained the situation from his own sympathetic position. Tissaphernes had allowed everything to fall apart. He instigated a rebellion that Cyrus himself had to quell, and now he seized control of a well-fortified city and had taken up arms against the Karanos. Cyrus portrayed Tissaphernes as the real rebel, and Parasadus helped argue his point at court. To make it clear this was not a power grab, Cyrus made a point to send all of the war loot and tribute from the Greek cities directly to Artaxerxes without taking his own cut as the military commander and the local governor. Artaxerxes believed Cyrus's intentions Artaxerxes took his brother at his word and sent an order for Tissaphernes to stand down and hand control of Ionia over to Cyrus. But the issue of Miletus remained undecided. All of the pro-Cyrus partisans had been ejected and exiled from the city government. But theoretically, Miletus was now Cyrus's. Some of the forces had to be recalled, but the Karanos kept Miletus under siege for several more years. Cyrus presented himself as loyal, and he used this presentation to mask his true intentions. In all likelihood, 
Cyrus had helped instigate this latest Ionian revolt for the specific purpose of providing an excuse to hire Greek mercenaries and keep them on the payroll as garrisons in recently captured cities. From 404 or 403 BC onwards, Cyrus started building up his own base of support. Under the guise of his role as Keranos, Cyrus gave orders to keep his territory in a constant state of military readiness. He frequently called up levies from all over Anatolia to train and present themselves in formation. This had the effect of making sure that all of his eligible subjects were used to participating in a drilled and effective fighting force. It dissuaded local rebellions and endeared a sense of loyalty to Cyrus, who had to pay their salaries when these local soldiers were on duty. It may also reflect some of his personal interest in Spartan military readiness left over from all of the personal friends and mentors he picked up in the Spartan fleet during the war. Cyrus began making his case to his fellow Persians, too, including various local governors and satraps in his territories as Keranos, but also to the large Iranian expat populations of Armenia and Cappadocia, regions where Cyrus was already more popular and better known than his brother. Plutarch describes his arguments targeted at other Iranians. Moreover, along with much high-sounding talk about himself, Cyrus said he carried a sturdier heart than his brother, was more of a philosopher, better versed in the wisdom of the Magi, and could drink and carry more wine than Artaxerxes. His brother, he said, was too effeminate and cowardly either to sit on his horse in a hunt or on his throne in times of peril. Some of this may have been true in a certain sense. By all accounts, Cyrus was an incredible prodigy in every way, and really was a better warrior and a better student than his brother. With Artaxerxes in his 40s and Cyrus just around 21 years old at this point, it's probably no surprise that Cyrus could drink more and was more comfortable on a horse. But he spun it in a way that made Artaxerxes sound like a poor imitation of a Persian king. Cyrus had to be careful with these envoys, sending them only to the Persian nobles he knew he could trust. In this, his mother was probably a key ally. Parasodus had been around the block a few times at this point and had been personally involved in the process of placing some of these nobles on their current thrones. She provided her son with a list of probable allies. From there, the nobles themselves could spread the gossip. Cyrus would find himself impaled on a spike outside of Babylon if his brother caught wind of his own conspiracy. But Artaxerxes wasn't stupid. He knew that some of the nobility preferred his younger brother and had to allow some gossip to spread if he didn't want to come off as a despot. It was fine so long as Cyrus himself continued to play the loyal servant.
When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Cyrus also began styling his court in the satrap's palace at Sardis more and more like a royal court in exile. He would host his subordinate satraps as Karanos, much the same way that a king would occasionally host satraps and nobles from around the empire. Cyrus had always enforced royal protocols in his court, possibly above and beyond the level of normal satraps. He could continue to get away with this on the basis that he was a prince after all, and the styling of his court was his own prerogative. But you get a sense from the Greek sources that he treated himself like a king, or at least a king-in-waiting. It's never clear how many royal traditions translated to the satrapal courts, or the courts of the Karanoi in this case but one royal tradition Cyrus may have adopted during his second stint in Anatolia was the concubine show. This is best known from the biblical book of Esther, see the 2021 holiday special, and was the practice of bringing attractive women from around the empire to the king and having them show off both their physical attractiveness and their good manners so the king could choose new sexual partners. Objectifying as it was, these women would become members of the royal household and receive lavish gifts of wealth and property. Cyrus ordered a similar display at his own court shortly after returning from Parsa. Described by Plutarch, the event bears striking similarities to the Esther narrative. 
Women from around Cyrus's territory were brought to Sardis, briefly trained in court etiquette, and then paraded into the palace's throne hall during a banquet, where they were instructed to lounge on couches and wait for the king's summons to present themselves. All of the women did as instructed except one, a Greek woman named Aspasia. She had been raised in a free and wealthy family in the Ionian city of Phocaea, but was taken as a prisoner during the Ionian War. It isn't known what happened to her in the first seven or eight years of captivity. The implication is sexual slavery, but if that's the case, the ordeal did not break her spirit. And it's perfectly plausible, especially as an educated woman from the upper middle class, that she was taken and enslaved as a tutor for upper class girls in other Ionian cities. Aspasia refused to comply with court protocol or the orders of Cyrus's servants. She would not lay on her couch, and when Cyrus summoned her, she refused to go. When the court servants tried to force her to comply, she raged and exclaimed that anybody who so much as laid a hand on her would regret it. Cyrus's guests at this feast scoffed and ridiculed her as a rude and uncultured provincial. Perhaps displaying some of the rather unpersian, laconic habits he had picked up after befriending all of those Spartans, Cyrus was intrigued. He laughed at her insolence and approached Aspasia himself, reversing what should have been the normal process of events. The other guests probably assumed he was going to condemn her and have her executed. This was Perisodus's favorite son, after all. Artaxerxes could outlaw cruel and vengeful executions all he wanted, but Artaxerxes was far away. Instead, Cyrus turned to the servant who was trying to detain Aspasia and pronounced that this was the only intelligent and worthy woman in the whole ceremony. He pronounced her Aspasia the Wise and offered to take her into his household. Presumably a little taken aback, she assented and soon became Cyrus's favorite paramour. Still unmarried for a variety of political reasons, Aspasia was Cyrus's closest thing to a queen. Of course, from the modern perspective, you can still look at that and still feel like the power dynamic kind of negates her consent, but based on her reaction to Cyrus's death, it is fairly clear that Aspasia was a committed participant in the relationship. This puts us around 403 BCE, and as the years progressed, Cyrus's plans began to take shape. The previous year, on the far side of the Aegean, a campaign had begun that would help to define Cyrus's own endeavors. The Spartan general and veteran of the Ionian War, Clearchus, felt that the Odrysian kingdom in Thrace was still a threat after aiding Athens in the Peloponnesian War. He claimed that they presented a grave threat to the Black Sea grain trade. Initially, the ephors, the Spartan elders, authorized a campaign against Thrace and Clearchus set out. He reached the Thracian Chersonese and the fringes of Persian control by the end of the year. Over that winter, 
the ephors retracted his command and ordered Clearchus to return home. He refused, and the soldiers loyal to him were exiled from Sparta on pain of death. Cyrus reached out and offered to pay their salaries if Clearchus would just quietly encamp in the Chersonese and maintain order on the Carinos' behalf. Though the exact terms of Persian control in the region fluctuated, the empire always tried to maintain a foothold on both sides of the Hellespont. Cyrus simply did exactly what the Carinos was supposed to do, and took the burden of that responsibility off of Pharnabazus in Phrygia. He also placed another army of Peloponnesian hoplites on his payroll. Later in 403 or 402, another development in mainland Greece caught Cyrus's attention. Aristippus, one of the tyrants or kings who ruled Thessaly in northeastern Greece, showed up in Sardis. He had been pressed out of power by his political rivals. He had also commanded troops in Ionia as one of the Peloponnesian allies and knew Cyrus personally. He appealed to his old friend for a loan of three months' pay for 2,000 mercenaries. Cyrus told Aristippus that he could have six months' pay for 4,000 men with a wink and a meaningful nudge. The message was clear. Assemble your original army, retake your city, and maintain a standing force on Cyrus's dime while waiting for some future signal. Then, in 401, a rebellion broke out in Pisidia, in the highlands between Cilicia on the south coast and inland Caria. Technically, this was Tissaphernes' territory, but it was also the second Pisidian revolt in recent history, so Cyrus put out the word that he wanted to march against them in force from the start, rather than risking a smaller force being defeated and allowing the rebels to dig in. He sent word to another Greek friend from the last war, this time a Boeotian named Proxenus. Simultaneously, he reached out to a number of previous friends and allies from a variety of Peloponnesian cities, telling them that he would pay their salaries if they would just round up some mercenaries to renew the siege of Miletus and mount a full-fledged invasion of Caria, so that Cyrus could depose Tissaphernes once and for all. Even as he put out that message in Greece, he recalled the army and fleet that were still outside of Miletus and told them that he would not rest until the rightful government of the city was restored but he needed their help with something more pressing. Gradually, these mercenary companies arrived and encamped outside of Sardis. Many of the soldiers and commanders were familiar with one another from their time in the Peloponnesian War. Most came from the Peloponnesian side, but many of them were former Delian League, who had just decided to make a living selling their skills as veterans to the highest bidder whether that bidder was Peloponnesian, Persian, or other. From there, the order went out to the local governors and the lesser satraps in Anatolia to gather up the full force of their armies and join Cyrus at Sardis to put down the Pisidian Rebellion. At the same time, Cyrus called in his favor with Aristippus, who had settled back into power in Thessaly, 
and was able to send 2,000 mercenaries he had hired under the command of a young and ambitious general named Menon. The last piece of the puzzle was formally engaging Sparta, and as far as our sources can tell us, this was the first force of soldiers brought into the army without false pretense. Cyrus sent an envoy to Sparta and laid the situation bare. Sparta was not receiving an envoy from a prince, a satrap, or a Keranos. These ambassadors were in Greece on behalf of King Cyrus III, son of Darius, great king, mighty king, king of kings, king of lands far and wide. They beseeched the Spartans on the basis that Cyrus was their steadfast ally. But should he fail, not only would they lose their greatest Persian ally, but Artaxerxes might turn against them. Cyrus promised any Spartan who joined him in war riches beyond their current station in life and steady, regular pay in accordance with his wartime reputation. Evidently, there was little debate. Sparta sent an admiral named Samios to set out for Ephesus at once with orders to do whatever Cyrus commanded and to transport 700 hoplites under the command of Kerasophos. At the same time, they sent word to Clearchus, reinstating him as a Spartan citizen and a general with orders to join Cyrus. Clearchus and his army made for Sardis, while Samios and the new forces from Sparta were joined by Cyrus's own naval commander, an Egyptian named Tamos, possibly someone who had fled from the growing revolt in his homeland. Tamos took command of the local Ionian ships alongside Samios's Peloponnesian fleet, still primarily composed of ships Cyrus had bought for them five years earlier. No local forces came from Hellespontine Phrygia or Armenia. Armenia was only at the periphery of Cyrus's realm, and the current rulers of the province were still Hidarnids, at odds with Parisatus's faction at court, even if they were only distant cousins of the previous rebel satraps. Meanwhile, satrap Pharnabazus II kept Phrygia out of the conflict entirely, preferring not to take a side before seeing the outcome. Even though the bulk of the army was under the impression that they were fighting various local rebellions, the Persian nobles knew what was happening. Cyrus had been hyping himself up as a potential contender for king for several years, and the size of the army left nobody with any doubts. Once everyone was assembled outside of Sardis, most of them still ignorant of their true purpose, there was some politicking to work out. Dozens of Greek nobles, aristocrats, and demagogues had recruited mercenary bands in the years following the Peloponnesian War, and now that thousands of Greeks had coalesced in one place, they had to work out a chain of command. Even if a given Greek leader had his own mercenary company, he was still likely to be the social and political subordinate of some of the other mercenary leaders in Cyrus's force. In the final shakedown, the army fell into three basic branches. Cyrus himself took charge of the cavalry force, composed of a combination of 300 Greeks, a royal bodyguard of 600 Iranian nobles with positions in Anatolia, 
and 1,000 locals identified as Paphlagonians from northern Cappadocia, though just as plausibly from a variety of Anatolian backgrounds. As a high-ranking Spartan with a renewed commission from the Ephors, Clearchus was now the highest-ranking Greek commander and took control of all of the Greek mercenaries. The final third fell under the command of one of Cyrus's close Persian allies, a noble named Ariaios, possibly a representative of the satrap of Cappadocia, though that's just an inference from his role in the war. It's not stated by any of our sources. He led the bulk of the infantry collected from various places in Anatolia. Ariaios also initiated a romantic, or at least sexual, relationship with the Thessalian general Menon. Somewhere in and among these mercenaries was an Athenian cavalry officer and student of the philosopher Socrates, who had once served his homeland during the Peloponnesian War, but became enamored with all things Spartan. Enter Xenophon. He had personally been invited to join the expedition as a commander by Proxenus of Boeotia when Cyrus called on him to gather mercenaries for a campaign against the Pisidians. According to Xenophon's later account of these events, he asked Socrates whether or not this was a good idea, and Socrates directed him to the great oracle at Delphi if he was going to have so much trouble just making up his mind. Given that Xenophon did go on the expedition, he must have received a favorable prophecy. It would be bad form to speak ill of a divinely sanctioned decision after the fact, but given how the story goes, I do wonder if Xenophon ever regretted going to that oracle. Proxenus, and by extension Xenophon, wound up under the overall command of Clearchus. As one of Proxenus's lieutenants, Xenophon was just two steps removed from Cyrus and got to witness the young prodigy in action, and even interact with him on a few occasions. Like many Greeks who met Cyrus the Younger, Xenophon grew to idolize the would-be king. Xenophon is one of the best-preserved ancient Greek authors today, and possibly the individual with the most varied corpus from antiquity. A few philosophers pass him up in total number of surviving works, and even a few others might beat him in terms of pure word count. Unlike any of them, Xenophon has works of political philosophy, history, economics, rhetoric, horsemanship, biography, and even historical fiction to his name today. Of those, four of his works are of real interest to the history of Persia. We've already been using his Hellenica for a while, a history of Greece that picks up where Thucydides left off. That carries to 362 BCE, so we'll have it for a while. He also wrote Cyropedia, an idealized and heavily fictional biography of Cyrus the Great that is useful for the stories not recounted in other sources and as a window into the legends that surrounded the founder of the empire. However, it is rarely useful as a source for actual historical events. Xenophon also wrote a biography of the Spartan king Agesilus, 
who will factor into our narrative a little bit later because he only takes power in 400 BC. But most importantly for the next few episodes, we have his Anabasis, a title that literally means the march up country. It chronicles the looming war of brothers and the experiences of the Greek mercenaries in the year afterward from an eyewitness perspective. This puts us at a very unique juncture in Persian history. For the first, and so far as I know, only time, we have not just one, but two eyewitness accounts for a major event. And to top it off, Xenophon and Theseus will find themselves on opposite sides of the battlefield during the climactic showdown at Kunaxa. But first, we have to get there, and that will be next week's episode. Until then, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to find more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. You'll find various things there like a family tree, my bibliography, and the support page where you can find different ways to financially support this project. The biggest one of those is Patreon. Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash historyofpersia get access to things like bonus episodes and ad-free listening. And discounts on podcast merch. You can also support the show for free by sharing it on social media. Find me on Twitter at History of Persia and on Facebook and Instagram at History of Persia Podcast. Until next time, thank you all for listening to The History of Persia. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.